0: Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Joe Wisenthal,
1: And I'm Tracy Alloway.
0: Tracy, I think we might have our most famous guest ever on the episode today.
1: <gasps> no way. We've um, had some pretty, like, well-known people before.
0: Yes, but the um, person we are speaking to today was for at least for a brief period one of the most well-known people in finance in the entire world, if not actually one of the most well-known people, period, like in in any news.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, do you want to go ahead and introduce who it is or say who it is?
0: Yes, I will. And, you know, I think one also might characterize, I said, that he's our uh, going to be our most famous guest ever. Others would probably say he's our most infamous guest ever. But our guest this week... Is Nick Leeson? He is famous for being probably the the biggest quote unquote rogue trader of all time. In the early '90s, it was his trades and the attempt to hide them that brought down the UK's Barings Bank, which was a bank that had been around for over 200 years. He then it was discovered, and he went to Singapore, where he spent years in a. Uh, Singaporean prison. There's books about him. There's a movie made about him. And then I think like after all that ended, probably most people never really thought about him again and probably have no idea what he's been up to since.
1: Right. Uh, But Nick Leeson is almost the original rogue trader of modern times, right? You mentioned there was a movie uh, famously with Ewan McGregor, called rogue trader. And it was, uh, I'm sure it was the first time that a lot of this stuff entered the public consciousness. And as you mentioned, he, he was in Singapore at Barings Bank uh, when he did his rogue trades, and then he ended up in jail. And then he sort of mounted a uh, a comeback career, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I do think that point you made is really key that from time to time, and I'm sure we'll have them again in the future, a rogue trader emerges, someone who went way beyond their risk limits at a financial institution, tried to cover them up, failed to cover them up, and then their behavior or their trades resulted in staggering losses. But as you say, I do think that term probably originated with Nick. Though I guess I'm not 100% sure, but that's something we can bring up. So without further ado, uh, Nick Leeson, thank you very much for joining Outlots.
2: um you're very welcome looking forward to it
0: i guess i'll start were you the first rogue trader
2: i look i think there were many before me there probably weren't as many that hit the headlines as as dramatically as i did i think um you know rogue rogue trader is one of those things that or rogue trading is one of those things that goes hand in hand with the market people are would often mismark their positions, the, the the mark to market, or they would trade outside of their positions. I was certainly not the first person to do something like that at Bearings. I was definitely the last one, and I, I I probably took it a little bit further than anybody had prior to that. And and I think obviously one of the reasons that I am so well known for that rogue trading activity is the catastrophic effect that my actions had in the, in the majority of cases. Most, most rogue trading episodes are caught fairly early, and whilst they do financial damage to the institution, they don't usually result in the collapse of the bank.
1: So I, I don't think we want to dwell too much on your actual trading at Barings, because at this point it's been really, really well covered. But for the purposes of this podcast and the conversation that we're about to have What would you say about what you actually did at at Bearings? Was it a rogue trade? Uh, Was it authorized? Was it as insidious as some people made it out to be?
2: I know, look, it was definitely rogue trading. I got myself into, I had an awful lot of autonomy in Singapore. I could pretty much do what I wanted. It was a remote subsidiary of the bank. There wasn't a great deal of, of control or expertise that surrounded me in terms of making sure that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. So when things started to go wrong and I found myself in a difficult situation, it was it was a lot easier than you would expect it to be to hide those losses for a period of time. Now, you know, I, I used to wake up every day thinking that today would be the day that somebody would expose what was going on. It was only ever supposed to be a short-term thing, like I said at the beginning. Putting things into error or putting trades into error accounts overnight was a was a regular occurrence at Bearings at the time. Um, obviously, everybody appreciates that the um, that it's not correct, but people used to do it. Warehouse a trade overnight, I think it used to be called, uh, and then the following day they'd usually close the trade out with uh, hopefully no loss on the transaction. So. I just took it a little bit, uh, oh, I took it a lot too far. I mean, my actions were criminal. They were criminal from the beginning. Um, I knew what I was doing. I knew that I shouldn't be doing it. Um, I, I continued and, you know, was rightly punished for my activities during that period.
1: So, Nick, what, what would you say is the difference between a good trader versus a rogue trader who's trying to
2: book profits? I, I don't know if there's um, if, if there's an easy differentiation. I mean, uh, obviously, people are, everybody knows what their position limits are. They know what they're supposed to be doing. People who work in the financial markets uh, are intelligent. I think when you find yourself in a difficult situation, you're surrounded by people that can help you. And I, I just thought that I could cope with the situation that I was in. I didn't want to fail. That was one of the biggest things for me. It was always about succeeding and being successful and I had a huge fear of failure so I didn't really communicate very well about anything that was going on at me uh, or or anything that was going on with me at at, at that particular time. So I mean being disciplined, being diligent, being accurate in everything that you do will separate those good traders from the bad traders but or, or or from a rogue trader but I think one of my biggest failings throughout that whole period, and it's not something that you see or or when you go back to the 1990s, just the lack of communication, both from me as an individual, from the organization, and creating an environment where people could talk about their failures and, and problems that they were facing within the organization just really wasn't there. It was all about being successful, competing against other people and competing against other banks. and you know, only uh, only the strong survive. And it wasn't um, an environment that was necessarily conducive to to owning up to what was going on, number one, but also doing a really simple thing which would have changed the pattern of everything that I did and everything that happened to the bank. and And that's just simply asking for help and advice. And, you know, I was 25 years old at the time and um, thought that I could cope with everything and saw asking for help and advice as a sign of weakness. And, you know, as you all know, banking back in the, the, the 90s wasn't really about showing weakness.
0: I think that's really interesting how you characterize that, just sort of the culture of not being able to make mistakes, fail, or ask for any advice or help from anyone. I think when people these days think about some of the risks that trading or proprietary trading takes that they see a sort of inherent asymmetry in which a trader can capture a bonus if they have big upside gains, but if they don't uh, have that, you know, they might lose their job, but that's the worst. They don't have unlimited downside in the same way. Now, of course, if one ends up in prison, that's different, but how much do you think that asymmetry is part of the mentality versus just what you described, sort of just, it sounds a little different, Uh, not quite that calculating, but just sort of a uh, a, a very sort of discouraging culture.
2: Well, I I mean, I think culture, conduct has a huge part to play, and, and regulators and financial institutions alike spend a lot of time looking at that these days. I mean, the short-termism of the bonus, bonus culture obviously has a is a key, a key component of people's behaviour, and I, I think a lot of banks and financial institutions are changing the way um, that that happens. But that bonus does create that short-term approach to what you're going to get paid in the very near future, and that does cultivate a risk uh, a risk appetite that um, can, can be quite unhealthy. But you know, I think if people, I mean, like I look back over, I'm 51 years of age now, so this is, you know, half of my lifetime ago as we currently stand. And um, you know, creating an environment where people can talk and, and and feel empowered enough to talk about things that they're experiencing within the work environment, I think is a crucial factor. And if you can, if you can then. Reduce some of that short-termism that we see with the bonuses that are paid within the world of banking. It, it makes for a safer environment. Um, you know, for me at the time, I, I come from a very working-class background. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to do better than my family members have done, and and sort of move along in terms of the way that that, that my life was progressing. And and being successful was the key part of that. And you know, I trying to enunciate my failure or, or, or to, to, to try and confront that myself was um, I'm not gonna say it was impossible because you sometimes you just have to do it, but the you know, it was just something that I didn't do during that time. Everybody sort of bought into the success story that surrounded me. And it propelled everything forward and, you know, whenever everybody else is then getting paid bonuses and everybody's looking forward to their bonuses, it kind of sweeps you up into this maelstrom that you you kind of have no control over. I know it's difficult to understand, but everybody was buying into the success story that surrounded me at the time
1: it's kind of amazing to me to think that you were 25 years old uh when when all this was happening um let, let's fast forward a little bit uh so you have the rogue trades at bearings they get discovered and eventually you go to jail uh for I, th- I think it was three to four years what happened once you got out of jail like what was your initial thought about wh- what your future was and what What was your plan at that point?
2: Yeah, well, I I was sentenced for six and a half years in jail, so you get a standard one-third remission. So I spent four years and four months in in prison in Singapore. I had cancer whilst I was in prison in Singapore as well. So when I was released, the first thing after four years in prison, you struggle to make decisions a little bit. So I was very reliant on my lawyer to help me through some of that decision-making process. I think something quite weird had happened in the period that I was away in prison. Things had changed in the UK and there was a infamy, celebrity, whatever you want to call it. And, and certainly in my case, it was infamy. People are intrigued by that. They're interested by that. So I had a very short window in terms of how I used to look at what I'd be doing for the next three months, the next six months or whatever. But then I started to get offers to do TV programs to talk about what happened during my time at Bearings. Um, I'd written a book before I went to um, went to Singapore. I was originally arrested in Germany and spent nine months there uh, writing the book Road Trader, that which which paid for my legal fees. I was uh, reasonably well off, but I wasn't wealthy enough to pay the the million and a half pounds that it was going to um, cost to to mount a defence of my case, not that there was much of a defence because I I, I pled guilty to everything, but it took nine months before I went back to Singapore, so there were some heavy legal fees that needed to be paid, so that was why I wrote the book Road Trader whilst I was in prison in Germany. But then when I was released, people um, invited me to do after-dinner talks at uh, at dinner, so after-dinner speeches, and then that's... Moved on to a lot of conference and keynote addresses at the at events that you know range from things that are very finance oriented, so risk management, compliance, organisations who are looking to promote their own products, through to uh, award ceremonies which uh, have nothing to do with the world of finance at all. So you know sometimes I might host a dinner for a small group of people who are who are vulture or venture capitalists and are looking to do some business with some key individuals. Other times, it can be a conference for upwards of five, 600 people at, a, at an event where somebody wants to focus on compliance and the things that can go wrong if you don't manage risk appropriately.
0: So you didn't have – obviously, people were intrigued by – your experiences, by what you learned, and you got a number of invites, as you said, to speak. But in terms of rebuilding a life, you have to figure there's only so much of a window where people want to hear it before eventually this sort of infamy fades. And what did you think then? Did you have some idea for like, okay, what is a career? What is a full second life possibly look like?
2: It's weird, Joe, to be honest with you. I mean, I do I, I do as many after dinners and uh, conference events right now as I did 19 years ago when I was released. So it's, um, you know, and, and I suppose things like uh, recently the Celebrity Big Brother program that I was on in the UK kind of introduced you to a younger generation. I mean, so I traveled the world talking at events. So the mainstay for the last 19 years since I was released from prison, has been after dinner, talking, um, talking at conferences. And I probably do somewhere between 30 and 35 of those a year.
0: Has anyone from Bearings, people whose careers and jobs were lost because the banks collapsed, people who lost a fortune, do they ever express resent that you have had built this career, getting paid to speak on these subjects, getting flown around the world, going on TV, becoming a sort of mini celebrity, which is in a way, arguably at their expense.
2: The honest answer is no. I've come across many people who worked with Bearings during that time. Um, I think the thing, and, and you find this with a lot of speakers as well, As you go around the world and you listen to them, if you tell lies, you get seen through. So I don't tell any lies. I told enough of them years ago when I worked at the bank. I I fully accept that. So it's very honest and candid. It doesn't paint me in a very good light. So, you know, I've met Peter Norris, who's the CIO of Bearings at the time. I've met many of the people who worked on the Asset Liability Committee. Several of the main board members that were at Bearings, and no, there's no resentment. You you do get a bit of negativity, and it it tends to come from people of a certain age group who, who work, uh, you know, who probably chartered accountants and think that I, you know, sought to undermine the banking system in the UK. And it's just a, you know, it's a story of errors and compounding those errors with some really stupid decisions during that period which ultimately led to the collapse of the bank it's you know it was fraud my my part in it was definitely criminal um and i was rightly punished for that and you know the punishment is is not just the sentence you know i i developed cancer whilst i was in prison i was divorced by my wife and i've had to rebuild my life after that so all of that is part of the punishment and i accept that Everybody's entitled to their opinion, but so am I. And um, you know, I, I I don't I don't walk around with my head bowed. Um, when you when you're released from prison, as I was in 1999, you have a choice. You can you can hide away, or you can confront what you did, try to understand it, um, and then move forward from that point. But if you if you really if you don't take yourself apart and really rip away all the veneer and really look at yourself and understand that you didn't like yourself and what you did and how you reacted in certain situations, then it's impossible to build yourself back up. You know, you have to go through that process. So when you look at some of these other road trading episodes that, that exists around the world, you know, Jerome Kerville being one, he still blames the bank. Quaker Adaboli, has lots of issues that he's campaigning against, um, but they did wrong it's the reliable rate fixes um, you know people who work in banks as i 've mentioned already are, are amongst the most intelligent people in the world, and they know when they're doing something wrong. So when a lawyer stands up and tries to convince the court that there was a pressure to perform and they, there's lots of other mitigating factors that 's rubbish because these people know what they're doing they know they shouldn't be doing it me included and for that reason they need to be punished and if you don't punish people you don't have deterrent and you know that's that what needs to happen
1: so i i think we do want to focus on you know how you rebuilt your life um and your career but since you, you brought up uh, Jerome Curvial and Kweku Adaboli at UBS, I'm, I'm just curious to get your take on this. Like, do you think there is a common thread that runs through all these different modern rogue traders, or is each rogue trader scandal different in some way, which would suggest that you know, for big financial institutions, there's actually no one like silver bullet way of protecting themselves?
2: I think you hit the nail on the head there. I don't think there is a silver bullet. I think you can you can look at and people have done this over the years. People have tried to look at personality types and you know behavioural analytics and how people are behaving. And I think there's you know there's very clear differences. I think between myself, Curvio, Alaboli. There was there was a guy um, Gucci at Daiwo in New York who was exposed around the same time as me as well so there've been you know during that period there were a uh, there were quite a large number i think eventually the industry you know rather than trying to work out who potentially is going to be the next road trader it's about making sure your controls and your systems are as robust and effective um, as they possibly can be And then you expose people far sooner, which I believe is what happens within the world of banking these days. There are still people who post rogue trades, not on a daily basis, but it happens. uh, And people are just exposed a lot sooner and the the net effect of their actions is, is very, very limited. You know, I think the day of these big, excessive rogue trading episodes is a long way behind us. You know, because the industry has changed, compliance and risk management is better than it's ever been. Um, so I, I don't think there is a silver bullet. It is about just making sure that your controls are as good as they possibly can be, that you freshen them up. You're not doing the same thing today that you were two years ago. Because if you are, you can guarantee that somebody's circumventing those rules already. So it's about being proactive and making sure that you're as good as you possibly can be. And that's what everybody aspires to be. It's just you know, when you're looking at compliance and risk management roles around the globe, not necessarily in any particular location, you you know, people don't like asking the difficult questions. They don't like rocking the boat. They're getting paid a big salary for, 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 for not doing a great deal. And maybe that's an incorrect characterization, but they don't want to rock the boat. You know, people need to ask the difficult questions. If you I think if you see something's going wrong or you're worried about something, you need a voice that's being heard. And banking over the years hasn't, uh, and I'm not talking about the US or any particular location, but certainly in the UK, banking hasn't encouraged that. People who are a little bit dissonant or, or disruptive and, you know, have a voice.
0: You're talking about your speeches that you gave and the lessons that you've learned. There are a couple other episodes in your recent career that are interesting, including for several years, you were the head of a a, uh, soccer team or a football club, uh, Galway United. How did that happen? How did you become the uh, head of a uh, football team?
2: Well I mean it's a small the the football teams in Ireland are quite small to be honest with you so the um no I live in Galway and my wife said I was getting in her way at home so she wanted me to go and do something and uh but that's, that's that's the genuine story so i I've been here for about fifteen years since I remarried, and you know there's a lot of big american pharmaceutical companies around here from shannon down to Galway and but they're not things that you know that, that I would be able to turn my hand to so uh, apart from working in financial markets the only other real interest that I've had is is football so when somebody asked me to get involved with the football club I did and you know it was a bit of fundraising at first and then uh, I moved on to become the chief executive of the football club and then resigned from there in 2010 and and like I say i I mean the mainstay over the last 15 to 19 years has been the, the after dinner speaking. I'm involved in an online trading education business at the moment, which has been going for three or four years. There's lots of people. Um, doesn't really apply to, to, to um, American citizens, but lots of young people getting involved in spread betting and CFDs and and losing a lot of money because they don't um, they don't really have any experience of the market there. They're lured in with some quite misleading advertising. So, you know, my name signifies more than anything else that this can be really dangerous and you can lose a lot of money.
1: So, I I mean, that makes sense in the context of uh, an online trading education system. Uh, but you were also on the most recent season of Celebrity Big Brother in the UK. And I, I I'm just wondering how that came about, because if you forgive me, you know, when I think about celebrities, I don't necessarily think about a rogue trader from the 1990s. So what was the approach that they made to you? And and what do you think you brought to that wait, show? Wait, can
0: I just, before, can I just intervene here <laughs> real quickly? Because I don't think many people probably do think of a former rogue trader as a celebrity, but my impression of UK media culture is that, There is a very large, enduring interest in, just to be blunt, reality shows about what we would call C and D list celebrities. And so people that aren't exactly the biggest names. I get the impression stateside that the media in the UK is much more into, oh, do you remember this? Name from the past. Well, here he is. So, anyway, you can answer Tracy's question, but in a way, I didn't find uh, I didn't find it that surprising of a uh, of a choice.
1: How dare you call Kirsty Alley a D-list celebrity, Joe? Kirsty
2: okay. Kirsty Alley is lovely. I won't have a bad word said about her. She, you know, she was lovely throughout my experience in the house. I, I think there's two things. Um, I think you're right. I think that a lot of the reality programs that we have in the UK, I think you can even go lower than D and probably get down <laughs> to Z. But they have themes as well. So um, the theme for this year was for uh, was for people that were caught in the eye of a storm, so a media storm, which obviously applied to me. And I think if you look through. I think there were thirteen people that went into the house at the beginning, and I think mine was probably the biggest media storm at the time i mean it as you characterize at the beginning it it took over the world's media for a period of time so I, look for me it was um it was a bit of a challenge for me i i it's twenty years since I've had cancer, so um you know I was given a a sixty percent chance of living for five years so I you know it's a bit of a milestone for me and it was one way of marking that they obviously pay you quite well for your time on the program so I'm not going to uh I'm not going to deny that part either but you know 99% of the response has been extremely positive and it it's been good and I, you know I as you as you mentioned at the beginning I came fourth so Kirsty was one of the people that beat me um So,
1: yeah, look, it was, I think it was a worthwhile experience. Okay, so Nick, here's a question for you. Um, You know, you had the rogue trade, uh, which clearly um, erupted into a media storm, as you put it, and ended in a jail sentence. But after that, you were able to rebuild your career. Um, You were, you know, a motivational speaker. You were the head of Galway United, and you were on Celebrity um, Big Brother. Do you think you're happier with that, with that career outcome versus what would have happened if you had been at Bearings without the rogue trading scandal? If you had just been a successful trader at Bearings, which would you have
2: preferred? I, I would definitely have preferred to be the successful trader at Bearings. There's, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, you, you have to look back on. Like Life has lots of different twists and turns and you're, you, you're the sum of all your experiences. I don't have to look away when I look at people. That period of my life will always be the most embarrassing period of my life. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, but I've dealt with it. I've faced it. Um, so I, don't, I, I can look people in the eye and move forward. I'm going to use the phrase to say that be proud of myself, but that's not exactly right. I'm comfortable and um, self-confident uh, in who I've become, but I'm not. I'm certainly not proud of what happened during that period between 1992 and 1995, because it's the complete opposite of what I wanted to achieve. So the answer to your question is, all things being equal, I would have preferred to be the CEO of Bearings at this time. Um, but, you know, that's at this point, unfortunately, that is just wishful thinking because life, for lots of different reasons, primarily my own stupidity, took, um, took a variety of different turns.
0: Nick, Lisa, this has been a fascinating conversation. Obviously, we've known your name for years in the news and really appreciate you coming on, and your candor and perspective. So, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you, guys. Thanks, Nick. That was great.
0: Tracy, I really thought that was an interesting conversation. Like I said at the end, you know, Nick Leeson is one of those names I've just heard forever. In fact, I think I can remember... Being in middle school when I guess I was 12 years old and reading in the news or seeing something on TV about (laughs) the collapse of this legendary multi-century old bank bearings and how it was brought down by a trader in Singapore. And so to actually uh, hear the voice of that person and get their perspective, I thought was incredibly fascinating.
1: Right. Well, I will say, I think you were a much more engaged 12 year old uh, than I probably was. But one of the things that struck me a lot is, you know, this notion that a 25 year old trader basically brought down one of the oldest merchant banks from Britain at the time. And, you know, as much as you want to lay the blame on a single person, the notion that any like 25 year old could do that to a single entity kind of speaks volumes about the controls that were also in place at that company.
0: Absolutely. And as he, as Nick pointed out, there have been multiple rogue trader incidents in recent years, and there almost certainly will be in the future because there's no silver bullet. But they haven't been on the scale that they've brought down an entire bank. And it seems kind of hard to imagine. I mean, you know, knock on wood, but it's hard to imagine in this day and age when there are so much more awareness of this and sort of surveillance of traders, internal controls, things like that, that that could happen. But, uh, you know, you is going back to 1992, the small sort of satellite branch way out in Singapore, different time zones than the people who we're really running the bank, you know, much less uh, ability to sort of watch everything in real time. It's almost not surprising that that was eventually going to happen.
1: Right. But you're right in the sense that we we do have additional measures now that are aimed squarely at preventing this type of behavior. And that's actually from what I remember, I think that's how Kwaku Adaboli, the UBS rogue trader, was initially found out was he went away on, you know, a lot of traders nowadays have two weeks mandated holidays so that if they are cooking the books, those things can actually come to light, and I, I think that's how they found him. So clearly, the industry is adapting to rogue traders and is installing new methods of um, finding them out. But I, I guess the challenge is always um, sort of adapting and making sure that the traders don't become used to your detection.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. I think also I just there are a number of people in the sort of Nick Leeson model of career rehabilitation that we've seen. So I, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street guy wasn't a rogue trader, but he got in trouble and then he sort of goes around and talks about stuff. But uh without judging any of those other people, I did get the impression that Nick is uh, sort of totally honest and upfront about what he did and the fact that he doesn't like sort of like pat himself on the back for having, you know, some great insights or blame other people. It felt like a sort of uh, honest, sincere reckoning and assessment of his own career.
1: Yeah, and I did think it was interesting that he said, you know, if he was given the ultimate choice between, like, his current comeback versus having been a legitimate trader um, who rose through the ranks of bearings, that he would have chosen the latter. That that kind of says a lot.
0: Absolutely. Well, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart.
1: And I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter
0: at Tracy Alloway. And you should follow Nick Leeson on Twitter. He is at the Nick Leeson. And don't forget to follow our producer, Topher Forhez on Twitter. He's at ForhezT. T. As well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening.